Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can consider us Car Talk because we focus on where the rubber meets the road. And with me on this epic road trip down the information superhighway of epic dataness uh, is my co-pilot Andy Leonard. <laughs> dataness. That's a dataness. That's a, I like that. I like that too. It, it, it implies uh, it's like truthiness, but it's for data people. I I dig that a lot. Yes, that's awesome. We should so, get that on a T-shirt and sell it. Dataness, I like that a lot. So, how are you today, Frank? I'm good. I'm good. I got a couple things in the hopper. I uh, can't quite talk about yet, but sure. um, I am super excited. And, cool. Um, uh, some cool stuff uh, around the corner. Um, but uh, how are you? How's things in Farmville? I'm doing well, but I think the best, you know, the best description would be a, a little bit of audio effect here. So here we go. I'm hoping you can hear that. I can hear that. You're you're pouring water, right? You're not it's recording coffee. this in your, in your bathroom? No, I'm not in the bathroom. This is coffee. Okay. Although, <laughs> you know the way coffee works, right? Later. Oh, later, yeah. But you no, only this rent. is it. It's the front end. That's right. You can only rent coffee and beer. <laughs> That's right. You only rent it. You only have it for a limited amount of time. I am. I'm actually doing really well, Frank. Better than I have been in a while. I am. Um, I was in a bit of a funk. A friend of mine passed away at the end of January. Um, I traveled to Seattle this past weekend to attend his memorial service. It was a really, really beautiful, inspiring memorial service. But he was a—he's an exceptional dude, and um, his his name was Tom Roush. And he—I used to call Tom the best unpublished writer I know, um, but. He had his book. He had a book published of his stories, which are out at tomrausch.net, T-O-M-R-O-U-S-H.net. And um, the book is called, I I have it here somewhere, but I can't put my hands on it. I believe it's called Stupid Things Papa Did When He Was Younger. (laughs) It's a great title. And you can go read everything for free, you know, out there at the... um, you know, at, at tomrouse.net, but the ebook is available. The ebook was actually published just a few hours before he passed away. He was told it was, uh, it was live on Amazon and um, they had the physical book, the very first copies of the physical book available at the memorial service. Um, I encourage everyone listening, everybody that likes to read good stories. Um, I, I meant what I said. Tom was the best unpublished writer I know. Um, he's, there's a lot of really good published writers out there, Frank, but, um, Tom's one of the best, uh, of those as well. And I just, I find his, his stories particularly moving. Wow. So, wow. It's, it's tough when somebody, you know, passes away. Well, um, it, it is. Um, but he had battled, uh, cancer for many years and, um, so it's, and, and he's a believer. So, you know, as I, I, I'm confident he's in a different place, a better place. I'm confident I'll see him again. 
And so he's not suffering anymore. Uh, at a at a bare minimum, if you believe nothing else, you know his his suffering has ended. And I was I just was kind of I was mopey, uh, you know. For it was about a month until we had the service, and and I was really mopey. But the service really did uh, it did its thing for my uh, for my soul. Um, I just came off of two and a half days, almost three full days of training delivering expert SSIS along with Brent Ozar. Um, I've got a webinar coming up today, later today. I've been doing these webinars, Frank, every Thursday at noon, um, a free webinar. And um, looking forward to this one on design patterns. Um, I'm on a diet. I started that keto diet. Um, oh, how's that going? Well, it's, so today is day four, and it's going really well. So, Frank, you know this. I'm type 2 diabetic. Mm-hmm. And particularly nasty because I I like consumed sugar. I would I think I slept in sugar as a kid. Huh. Yeah, I I abused my my poor pancreas, and I was on. Um, I, I've been on you know the most medication you can take before the doctor says you have to start insulin, and it was interesting. So we did this this expert SSIS class Monday, Tuesday, and a half day Wednesday, and I know me. And I do the last thing I could tolerate while trying to deliver, you know, seven hours of training per day is a crash, a sugar crash that just would not work. So right. we started eating better on Monday and I just stopped taking the meds I take in the morning, which is about two thirds of my my medication. And I just took my meds at night. Um, and what I noticed was my blood sugar started dropping and. This morning, after day four, it it is almost normal, Frank, um, and and running wow. on one third of the meds, and it's almost normal. So that that's very inspiring to me because that's one of the reasons I want to do the diet is I want to drop some weight so that the type two diabetes will go away. I'm I'm doing this to myself, you know. It's just non disciplined eating, and I'm very bad at that. But if I can lose right. this weight, get my sugar under control. You know the damage that I've done already won't uh, won't go. You know, not all of it can heal. There's there's neuro damage that happens. Um, so they say. Although I'm not, I don't suffer from symptoms of that, but I'm sure it's there. Um, but other stuff will. You know, at a at a bare minimum, I'll stop hurting myself uh, with my high sugar. Right, and it's never too late to stop hurting yourself, as they say. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, that's what I'm doing. You, I know you've got some. You got some big news that you can't talk about yet. I'm excited because I know the big news, um, right? Yeah. So, but it'll be we'll have a special um, maybe event. I don't know, like you know, we'll have to find happy music instead of the dramatic um, <laughs> uh, piano music. Well, but, I um, you know I could tell things were better because you and I have both been terribly busy, um, right? And not that's a good thing. Um, most of the most of it was good. The the downside was we, you know, we kind of got we got really sparse the last month or so of last year and the beginning of this year with our our data driven podcast. Um, you jumped right in and, and knocked out a couple of shows. We did a couple of recordings and you you do the editing work. Everyone should know this. I don't do anything except talk. OK, Frank does the work. <laughs> and look pretty. <laughs> no, I was, you know, I thought that, but I was like, mm, no. <laughs> nah, I've seen me. But Frank, nah. Frank does all the work, and he fired back up on this a few weeks ago. We had the show with um, with um, Mr. Heckman, 
come out. We had the deep dive come out. And if I'm not mistaken, today is another deep dive. That's what we wanted to do. It is. Now let's cue the uh, cue the dive alarm. So uh, this is our second deep dive where we uh, examine a technology. Uh, and uh, it's just Andy and I talking and we, we focus on technology uh, that's data related. Uh, the last time we focused on um, the topic of data science versus data engineering. We got some good feedback there. Yes. And sir. today we're going to talk about something Andy is an expert in and he talks a lot about. So I will play the um, the FNG, the freaking new guy, uh, <laughs> as I ask him questions. Um, just don't kids don't use the word FNG because the F is not necessarily for freaking. True. True. It's like the scene in um, uh, was it Gal- Gal- uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? He's like, "What do you say?" He said, "Welcome to the freaking <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy." <laughs> Although he didn't say freaking. So, um, yeah. So with that, we're going to discuss kind of what exactly is. Uh, we're going to talk about what is SSIS, aside from being often misconstrued as uh, talking about ISIS, uh, which I'm sure has you on a couple of government watch lists. <laughs> <laughs> very well very well may um well whenever you do a search you know for ssis you get the last time i did it and looked i think it was like 21 million results at bingle mm-hmm. um i totally ripped that off from ed danger watson by the way and ed's a presenter <laughs> he talks about ssis too but he's he says bingle for the search engine i like that um i like that too it's nice and uh or um is his middle name really Danger? I, you know, I'm not sure, but he's he's on Facebook as Ed Danger Watson, so I always say it that way. Ed Danger Watson. Yeah. I've always wanted to. Uh, my wife kind of shot down the idea of uh, giving our um, our boys uh, the name uh, Danger as a middle name. That would have been but, a that you know I think it's a cool middle name. Yeah, well, I was trying to convince her like, no, 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 it's a French thing. You know, it's like Danger. <laughs> That's a good she, try. Right? That that really is. Well, you have French uh, ancestry, right? I do. So yeah. I thought I, it would fly. You know, Lavinia or Levine is actually, um, you know, French origin. So sure. that was very um, clever, though. And she didn't she didn't bite, huh? I married smart. So <laughs> which is which is ninety nine percent of the time is awesome. <laughs> but, uh, you can't put anything past her. So well, I know your wife, and she's a charming lady. She is also an engineer. Also an yes, she is, and she's she. You're right. She's very smart. We've uh, we've had conversations over dinners before, and um, I have nothing but respect and admiration for her, uh, both as uh, you know, being married to you. Which can let's let's be honest, being you know our wives, both of them, put up with a lot. Um, oh, as patience of a saint. <laughs> I mean. But she's also a, a technologist, and she's she is very sharp with that. But yeah, you search for SSIS on Bingo, you get like 21 million results or something. And you it's not long before you get into surgical site. Uh, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, secondary, I forget, it's it's secondary surgical site infections. I think that's it, or surgical site Oh, that infections. sounds pleasant. Yeah, SSI, SSI capitalized in a lowercase s. But, you know, Bingo doesn't discriminate on case. So... So what exactly is SSIS? I know that the SS stands for um, um, SQL Server. Yes. 
And, and so what does the IS stand for? The IS stands for integration services. And the fact that the SS stands for SQL Server is, I think, the seed of a great amount of confusion, especially with recruiters and uh, people who work in HR that are looking for folks to, you know, to do this kind of work because SQL Server is a popular relational database engine. And so you think if someone's good at the relational database engine, they're also going to be good at the other things uh, in the Microsoft BI stack that have SQL Server in the name. So integration services, reporting services, analysis services, uh, you know, they all have uh, SQL Server in their name. Right. So there's a whole the whole alphabet soup of things um, related to SQL Server. So you have SSRS mm-hmm. and uh, SSAS? Yes. Yeah, that's analysis so, services um, in addition to SSIS, yeah. And then RS is for reporting services. Right. And then the tool, uh, SSMS. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just, you know, they've got 22 other letters. Um <laughs> SSSS. No, but they really like for them, that. What's that? <laughs> what about S, uh, SSIS as a service? Well, that exists, actually. It's SSS? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess you could go there. I like to call it Sassafras. I like to call Sassafras. it Sassafras. Sassafras. That works. That that actually that has legs, Frank. That that'll that'll preach, as we say in Farmville. Uh, but um, there is actually a service out there. It's part of uh, Azure Data Factory version two, and the official name is Azure Data Factory version two integration runtime. But it's also referred to as SSIS in the cloud, um, and it's been out there for. Let's see, we're recording this in March of 2018. It's probably been about I don't know six months, seven months. It's been out. I want to say it was around September when they announced it, and. You can, uh, it, it is remarkably similar to um, SSIS running on premises. There's an instance of what's called the SSIS catalog, which is a framework for executing and configuring and, and capturing log messages from SSIS execution. And it's out there and it's almost identical. In fact, I haven't found a difference um, between running SSIS catalog on premises and running it in the cloud, other than. Um, you know, there, there's a there's both sides of this, right? It's on demand, so you could you could technically um, use it when you need it, and then turn it off. Although at the time of this recording, and I know this is still true because I did this yesterday, it takes about 20 minutes to turn it on. <laughs> so, wow! So turn on um, SSIS in the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. And so I get this clear. Sorry. That's good. Is that part of ADF or Azure Data Factory? It is. Yeah. Azure Data Factory version two. There's a version one and a version two. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, yeah, it takes. Well, I remember. Go ahead. Oh, no. I remember when I was, uh, I got, I was studying the uh, edX certification for uh, Azure Data Factory and it was kind of like, this does a lot of things that Andy talks about that like. (laughs) are kind of in the periphery of my understanding. <laughs> well, you know, the big field is is data integration and or and or data in, engineering. I mean, that's they there's a lot of there's a I was going to say they cross a lot. There's a lot of uh, overlap there in the uh, Euler diagrams, uh, which is the proper name for what we identify most often as Venn diagrams. Um, oh, yep. 
EU didn't know that L E R. Yeah, yeah, Euler. Hmm. So, but uh but yeah, there's a lot of overlap there between um data integration and data engineering. I think there's I, I would say there's probably um a good data integration person is is a data engineer. Uh, and I, you know, I wouldn't, I would hesitate to make a distinction between the two. It just, here's how it feels to me. Just, just completely, you know, put asterisks around this. In my opinion, only, I think data engineering um, requires uh, more understanding of the analytics part of this. More, more understanding of, excuse me, of what you're going to deliver and how it's going to be used. Whereas data integration focuses mostly on just, you know, uh, data, just what you're going to deliver. I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, that makes sense. So so just I'll repeat it just to make sure that I, I got it, is that data integration is about getting something from one place to another in a slightly different format, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas data engineering, you're kind of plugged into the whole data science pipeline. Is that a That's a thing? better way to say it. Yeah. And it took way less than you know, the last two or three minutes I used trying to say it. Yes. Oh, I, I, I had my neural network listing. <laughs> well, I thought the coffee would help my neural network, but apparently it hasn't kicked in yet. Um, uh, it takes about 20 minutes, I think. Does it? So we're, we've got a few minutes to go, but. So you'll be, you'll be hopping at the end of the show. That's sure. it. Yes. So data integration is kind of the big field. Data engineering, I think is a little bit bigger not much. I think uh, data integration is a subset that fits inside of there. SSIS is just one tool that can be used to do um, data integration or data engineering. And uh, there are others out there. And I think all of them have strengths and, you know, all have benefits. And there's some liabilities with each. Um, I've been working with SSIS before it was, since before it was released. And um, that, you know, I've been able, I've been able as a result to experience what I define as the corners in SSIS. Um, all languages have corners. So uh, I would say that uh, SSIS probably has more than most. Um, I usually tell people it has about 30. 30 corners. That's a, I don't even want to know what the word for that is. It's way beyond dodecahedron. Um, so, so what is integration? Is it integration a fancier word for ETL? And I'm talking about extract, transform, and load, not the uh, uh, code for the uh, national carrier of Ethiopia. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> there we go. I like it. I like it. The um, I would say ETL is a subset of data integration, and, and here's why I would make that distinction. Um, ETL, extract, transform, and load, or its cousin, uh, ELT, extract, load, and then transform, are typically used to to load data warehousing, uh, you know, type targets. Um, but you can do data integration on, say, just just standing up an instance that's essentially a copy of your uh, production data that can be used for querying, you know, the read-only perhaps that the analysts can hit or the business people can report against. What is the distinction between ETL and ELT? Other than that, sounds like a sandwich. <laughs> ELT. What would the E stand? Egg. Egg lettuce. Egg. And tomato. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good keto thing, doesn't it? It, it actually does. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, without the bread, you couldn't have the bread. No, 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 no. Bread's overrated. 
I've been doing keto, just so the listeners know, I've been doing keto kind of off and on, which is, I guess, technically not doing keto pure. But uh, I've lost 20 pounds in 2017. Um, wow, Frank, congratulations. Thank you. And I feel better. I had a, a carb binge last week, and it's just, you, once you get used to not having carbs, yeah. you realize how evil sugar is. Well, I've been, I don't want to, you know, I'll, we'll take this a little path for a minute, but I've been shocked. I'm, I'm, you know, three and a half days in. Okay. So I'm like an expert, right? <clears throat> but nah. what I've been shocked about most is how little I experience hunger. Yeah. That's floored me. But you know, my, my bride has done, uh, she did about a month of research, Frank. She laid out 12 weeks of menus and we're going to run this. We're going to run this for the next few months. So I also know that you've walked about a thousand miles too. Uh, well, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, that helped. Um, I have a treadmill desk, which I know sound, makes me sound like a lunatic, but yeah. um, once you try it, you will understand why it's, uh, it's actually a good idea. So <laughs> now you've done great with that. So back to your question, ETL versus ELT, it's really about where, um, where the transformation work happens. And often that transformation logic uh, is a, is a big hog for RAM, a big hog for CPU. And if we're talking about SSIS, we have a data flow task where we will pick up a bucket of rows and it's a beautiful architecture. It's called the pipeline architecture. It, if you could picture, because I know you're a software developer, Frank, you've done a lot with web and phones and tablets and that sort of stuff. You're very familiar with REST. Right. So so this Representational is, state transfer. Exactly. For those listening. So yeah. this, is, this is almost the equivalent of REST for data movement. Um, hmm. The pipeline will pick up in SSIS, it'll pick up some number of rows. The default's 10,000, but it usually picks up some less than that. And then it does some operation on it. Initially, it just picks it up and starts it down the path to the next component. Um, but then it'll pick up the next bucket of data, and it'll just continue doing this. this. They call them buffers. They are buffers in RAM. They're populating. And it does all these transformations unless you're doing ELT. So if, if you're doing extract, transform, and load, you would pick up stuff, and then you would do transformations. And a transformation could be anything as innocuous as a... Um, say, uh, a, a changing of a data type, casting to a different data type. Um, it could be uh, either, you know, com constructing or deconstructing contents of a, of a, uh, a you know, a, a data row column, you know, one field, just take that apart and, and deconstruct it. And you see this with, with dates that are listed in, you know, just uh, CCYYMMDD. You may just want to separate out, the uh, the year part of that, the century and the, and the year part. Um, and then you may want to run a calculation on the month to then create a value that indicates which quarter it's in. That All of that falls into the bucket of transformation. Um, and when you're doing ETL, you would do that operation if you're using SSIS inside of the data flow task. Um, and if you're not, if you're doing ELT, you would just load all of that data from, you know, point A to point B. And then somewhere over there in point B, you would run a follow-up process that would then do all of that magic that you would have done in the pipeline. And 
Oh, so it's just changing the order of where the work gets done. It is. It's the order and and where. So in SSIS, that execution, you know, that all of that transformation would occur in RAM. Um, if you d are using SQL Server as your target and you're doing the transformation there, then the relational engine would be doing the transformation and it would be doing it in, in the big umbrella of SQL OS in the relational engine. And the stored procedures are a common way to do that. So, yep. Interesting. So then is it, uh, so I have a couple of questions. Sure. Um, one is, um, the, the, I'm assuming the programming language here is in, uh, it's in T-SQL or Transact SQL? Uh, it is if you're, you know, once you get to the transformation logic, if you're doing that on NT-SQL, you are using um, SSIS specific tasks, uh, which are, it's an interesting GUI. It's drag and drop. And it's programmable as, you know, most of the time through editors that are graphical. Um, you can perform logic on it using T-SQL. Um, there is an expression language in SSIS that is very powerful and also very hard to learn. It is finicky. Uh, it's very picky. This is it DAX? It's, no, it's worse than DAX. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, uh, Patrick LeBlanc, who is one of the guy in a cube guys, we got to get them on the show. We, we've done some data points with them. We got to do, do a bigger interview with them. They're awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Patrick, uh, years ago, he did SSIS training and he's still, he's a, he's a really good SSIS developer and architect. Um, I heard Patrick once at a presentation describe SSIS expression language as Transact SQL or T-SQL and C-Sharp uh, getting together and having a bastard child. And, and that's, that's what it looks like. It's, it's very much a mix of operators. Um, and and there's, there's, it's not random case sensitivity, but it feels that way when you start learning it. Um, you, can, you can capitalize or not capitalize the names of the functions in expression language, for instance, like the isNull function. You can write that any way you want, but if you are testing to see if a field value in that particular row in the data flow is null or not, you better match the case of that that field name. If you don't, it just it's over at that point. And if you're testing that not just the value, but if you're also comparing inside of SSIS the um, the values from say a, a case uh, two case insensitive databases, you're pulling them in and trying to match. Um, you may have a match on, say, lowercase aa and uppercase aa if you were writing this in T-SQL. But if you do it in expression language, it will call that a mismatch. Even if the data sources are case-insensitive collations, SSIS is still case-sensitive when it does its comparison. So that's one of the corners. So, Right, right. So... Is that is it called USQL or does it have its own name? So USQL is what we use to talk to data lakes, and I know you've been doing some work in that. You're you're getting you're almost right. done with another certification, Frank. By the way, right. if you're if you want to be challenged, if you want to have a role model for certifications, <laughs> go to LinkedIn and look up Frank Lavinia and scroll down to that certifications. It it won't be hard to find because it's a big chunk of that page. I'm just saying. It might be the largest <laughs> chunk now. Yeah. What are you up to now? Um, it's twenty some. Uh, I think twenty three, oh, and then um, I did got seventeen in twenty seventeen, and I think you were joking with me. Maybe I should shoot for eighteen <laughs> in twenty eighteen. Um, which is funny because I got four in January. Wow. Um, wow. 
but I slacked off in February and got none. Oh, so wow, wow. March is a new month. I'm actually in the middle of the uh, real-time streaming analytics okay. one on edX. Cool. Um, I did that one. Taught by Graham Malcolm. I can't believe I've done one that uh, I finished one. That I haven't done? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But um, so, 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 I mean, when you said, because uSQL is kind of a, a mishmash of, uh, I wouldn't call it the bastard child, yeah. but it's a, definitely an odd mix of like, um, it reminds me of a South Park episode where they started doing gene splicing <laughs> and they shouldn't have done. But um, so uSQL is kind of a mix of, of C Sharp and, and, uh, and C- T-SQL. Yeah. Uh, is, is this the same language no. or is it something? So a this different? is different. SSI's expression language is its own, its own animal. And I imagine there's similarities to uSQL. I don't know enough about uSQL right. to make that statement. Um, but it is, and and we've seen this, Frank, all over the the .NET spectrum here, especially the last few years. As um, as gosh, it's probably been ten years now since they introduced language integrated query or link. Um, we saw right. this. I'll describe it as SQL ish, um, you know, stuff come into the .NET language. And interestingly, I I use Link. I, I actually write some code in C Sharp every now and then. I I feel like I've worked my way up to being a noob. At C sharp, I think I've reached, I've attained noobness. But, <laughs> but yeah, I'm getting there. But I use Link, and but not Link to SQL. I find that just to be, it just looks wrong to me. It feels wrong, and I'm not. I, that's just an opinion. I promise, I'm not. I'm not qualified to criticize it. And even if you know, even if I was, it's probably awesome. I just don't. It just doesn't feel right. I don't know a better way to, to describe Link to SQL than that. It's one of those things where SQL is more of a set-based kind of quasi-functional language. It where is, yeah. C sharp is more—I um, don't want to say procedural, but yeah, it kind of yeah. is more. It's definitely more procedural than functional. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, you know, imperial. I forget the you know all of the terms that are out there to describe languages. Um, there's all sorts Imperative. of descriptors for it, but I, you know, I'm more right. interested in what I can do with it and. It, yeah, this is uh, the the expression language is probably one of the steepest learning curves uh, on the uh, slope of learning SSIS. It's but if you learn it, it is extremely powerful. So and that's kind of sort of the trade off I see all over software is things that are difficult or you know making you type just so with the cases and stuff like that. They're usually more powerful. So then you mentioned buffers and RAM. Um, and that is a uh, the hallmark of Spark, where it does in memory processing. So how does this all? How does this all? How does SSIS compare or contrast to Spark and the Hadoop world? Kind of that 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 kind of ecosystem. Well, uh, on the comparison side, uh, they can both be used for you know, of course, for data integration. Um, Spark has other uses. Spark is more of a framework where you can drop in different, you know, modules, plug in different things, and it'll right. just do it. SSIS is is more limited in scope than that. It's more focused on data integration. Although you can do other things with SSIS, there's things you should never do with SSIS. So. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they, uh, from a contrast standpoint, Spark was designed from the ground up to run in a distributed network. It doesn't need, I mean, you don't have to think about how am I going to make this run in parallel? Um, SSIS, right. you do have to think about how I'm going to make this run in parallel. You have to be aware of, of um, 
you know, I guess different constraints is, is, is probably the best way to describe it. Um, it's possible to use an awful lot of RAM in SSIS and it's not hard. And so if you, uh, if you're not careful and you're running a couple of things that are RAM heavy uh, in parallel, you can run out of RAM. And depending on the operation, that can be really bad. Interesting. Like what, what could happen? Well, if you're um, populating lookup transformations, which is a, uh, which is a, a popular way to do uh, different types of load patterns, like the incremental load pattern. And there's, when I say incremental load pattern, there's dozens of those uh, variations on those, but you almost always have to perform a lookup operation. You, you're trying to compare the source that you're reading to the destination. Um, if nothing else, you're looking to see, are there rows in the source that currently don't exist in the destination? And there's this implied arrow of time, right? The source should be uh, more up to date than the destination. That's usually the way SSIS and data integration works. And if you're doing a lookup, you're trying to find out, is it here but not there? Um, then the next step is let's load it to there. Let's put it in the destination. Lookup transformations fail if they, uh, if they run out of RAM. And um, I have a story about that. Back in the day, I was, uh, I was hired by Unisys to uh, work with Medicaid data, and we used the ES7000s. And I want to say we had 96 CPUs and um, a terabyte of RAM in production. And I, I filled wow. up a terabyte of RAM with an SSIS 2005 lookup transformation. It took almost 24 hours, but I did it. Uh, so, and it crashed after I filled up RAM. <laughs> so. Wow, a terabyte yeah. of RAM. So my next question is, because I'm playing the role of the FN, FNG, um, what exactly is an ES7000? Is that a class of server? Yeah, it's a it's a big old box, Frank, um, that uh, Unisys had forever, and they're still out there. And it, I mean, ninety six CPUs is still a lot. And this was ten years ago. Um, we had those right. those boxes. We could get some massive parallelization going on. Um, you know, there were there was all sorts of tweaks that they were doing to the uh, the operating system. They were running Windows Server, and then. Um, SQL Server on top of that, there were tweaks for that, you know, just special for that much uh, parallelism. And in a Windows system, 96 CPUs is probably still considered massively parallel. Um, so, right. Yeah, we got to play with a lot of that. There was uh, some statistics that Microsoft released about uh, how much time it took them to load a terabyte of data using SSIS. And the first one I heard back in the 2005 days was it took 30 minutes and then there was a follow-up that it only took 10. And I know the guy, the guy that did that with Microsoft was actually working at Microsoft at the time, Hank Vandervalk. Um, he's no longer at, uh, at Unisys, but um, I think he's an independent consultant now in, uh, in Europe. Um, but Hank was the guy who was able to load that much data that fast. And those were, that was blazing speeds back then. It's not too shabby now. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that's, that's respectable mm -hmm. now. So one of the things I noticed was when you when you started tweeting and blogging about um, uh, that you were learning Spark because when I was going through the Spark classes, I was like, I was like, you really need to check this out. It's, it I don't think it's exactly like what you do in SSIS, but a lot of the things are sound very similar to me. Yeah. So 
and you started tweeting about it when you when you started going through the the, the certification classes for it, and that freaked out some people. It it did. Um, you know, every time. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I've had this experience before, Frank. Um, uh, back in the uh, 2009, 2010 era, I was a, uh, a SQL Server MVP for five years there. And I, I played around with some other technology. It was a company called Expressor. They are, uh, their tech has been bought by Click, um, the ClickView people, and uh, since then. But they reached out and we talked about the differences between SSIS and the Expressor product. And that raised similar concerns. There were some people that felt like, I think, that like I was betraying SSIS or I was a big traitor. And I was like, well, no, uh, SSIS is an awesome tool and I do love it. I still do. And I think it's a it's a fantastic bargain. Um, it, technically, it's free. Uh, when you, you know, when you purchase the relational engine license, you just get the BI stack for free. And it's just, that's hard to beat for a value proposition, right? When you do that division, you get an error. Right. <laughs> ah. So there's that. But I, I, I felt like it was a similar uh, episode. Of course, I wasn't an MVP anymore. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't get any kind of pressure uh, along the same channels as I did there. And it wasn't bad. Don't, I don't want to speak bad of my experience as an MVP, but there was some, I feel like there was some legitimate questions raised, but there were questions raised. Mm -hmm. So, but there was, it was that kind of thing. People were like, are you, you know, are you going open source too? You know, cause a lot of people have gone that path, right? Yeah. There was, you remember the alt.net, right. alt.net movement. There was a lot oh, yeah. of kind of that crowd, like didn't like.net in the early days back. I don't know. I guess 2000 to 2005 or something. And, they kind of right. went off and did open source stuff, and I I get it, um, but I wasn't I wasn't going down that path. But I did get that kind of uh, I got some pushback on it. I got some people sending me emails. They were concerned, and I blogged about it um, just a little. I was most impressed so far in my studies, and I'm still I'm working on the big data certification like you are, um, and I was most impressed with Apache Storm. Um, I, yeah, that is man. I found thing. that very validating, and I want to dig into that some more. There's some stuff I want to do that I'm not going to talk about because I don't want anybody else to beat me to it. But, <laughs> mm. but it's it really does lend itself to to design patterns. Uh, I mean, it's just obvious and it, it's super right. fast. I mean, the data. The hardest part of me moving data for Apache Storm was actually uploading it on my little 25 meg DSL pipe here in Farmville. Um, after I got it up there, it just flew and it's in Azure. So it is, it is a Microsoft offering HD insight, um, is up there. Spark, uh, uh, spark and storm and all of you can create all of these clusters and stuff. But yeah, I was really, really floored by that. And I'll, one little tidbit and I'll shut up is, um, you know, for years I looked at, uh, SSIS and I said, you know, this is missing. It's not bad, wrong, broken, uh, defective. It's just there's some parts missing. Um, and I've written most recently about data integration lifecycle management. And it's still a struggle for many developers to do things. And there's some things, Frank, you just flat can't do. You can't compare SSIS packages, the current version, to the one you, you stored in source control yesterday. That's You can. I'll take that back. You can do the comparison, but it's not very helpful. 
<laughs> so, right. You know, so what is, uh, I, I've seen you, you, you write and tweet about uh, DILM, which uh, I'm assuming stands for data integration, life cycle management. It. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, all of the cool, you and I are both developers. I mean, we, we just are. I was an MCSD mm -hmm. back before .NET. You've got 20 years software development. Um, and when I jumped the fence and started doing data stuff, I was used to being able to operate in a life cycle where I had multiple tiers, dev, test, QA, UAT, production. Um, I was used to source control just working. Um, I was used to mm -hmm. to the idea of testing software. I, I practiced test-driven development. That actually came out before .NET was uh, generally available, uh, Ket Beck's book. And, you know, I really got into that. And then I got over to the data side of stuff, and I was like, where is all this? And it just felt like it was missing. And there's been a lot of work, um, and I, I feel it's been kind of slow going, but a lot of work has been put into database lifecycle management redgate for instance has a has a fantastic tool i think they've they probably led the charge in uh, dlm and there's been work done here and there on data integration lifecycle management specifically with ssis now some of the other platforms frank that are out there for data integration um they do this they they have it all built in they've got a way to manage it and the other the flip side is, you know, you can pay a million dollar maintenance fee per year uh, for some of those. So it's a balance, right? Zero, a million bucks, DILM, or kind of roll your own DILM. And I've been in that. Right. that but if your team's big enough, you're, if you roll your own, you're going to, it's going to well, cost. It's going to cost. Yeah, it is. Um, it's going to cost more than zero, <laughs> but it's going right. to hit right. a million. Ah. I don't think so. I think that's a. I mean, if your team is, if your data team is big enough, I guess it possibly, could, but, but it's not that hard to do it. And I'm not the only person who's thought about this. Uh, Pragmatic Works has a um, a solution for testing SSIS packages that hooks right into the Visual Studio Test Framework. It's called LegiTest. Um, they've solved that. Um, I've written a um, a tool called SSIS Catalog Compare. A little commercial here that will do like a comparison of packages and their configurations metadata stored in an SSIS catalog. Um, and the version I'm working on now actually will compare across all versions of the catalog. So 2012, 2014, 2016, 2017, and the cloud. It'll actually do the cloud stuff. Um, not only does it do that, but it oh, will, wow. uh, you can script uh, generate a script from either of those sources and then apply it to any of those destinations. It is... At this time, at least, uh, the catalogs are so similar that I don't need to be specific. So I can upgrade, downgrade. Um, I can move things around, you know, once it's deployed uh, somewhere, especially the metadata. And that's that's kind of the tricky part. So I may have, you know, 100 variables defined in what's called a, an environment, a catalog environment. Um, it's, it's difficult to script those out of the SSI's catalog inside of the tool that ships from Microsoft. It's not impossible, but it isn't as intuitive as you think it would be. And I just throw everything into a tree and you can, you know, you can right click on a node and say, blow out these scripts and you can do specific things or you can say script the entire catalog. And, you know, it's very handy for that sort of stuff. So. 
Oh, so is this like uh, when you when you want to script out a uh, create a script that would create a copy of the schema of the database? It's similar, is this like yeah. the same thing, but for yeah, very similar. Because okay. I was wondering what exactly is a what is what is a catalog? Because when I, I hear catalog, I think a repository of data, like you know the right. old Sears catalog. But so, what exactly is a catalog in this context? Because that that's something that uh, I I've always thought you said catalog compare compare right. catalogs, and I'm like. My first thought was like, you know, when you're a kid, you're looking at the Toys R Us catalog <laughs> in one hand and then the Sears toy one in the other. So what what exactly um, what exactly well, does that very, mean? It's a very fair catalogs? question. So the SSIS catalog that um, Microsoft developed, it's a it's an SSIS framework and you use that for managing execution, uh, for managing storage of packages um, and then for managing things like configurations. So. You can externalize values, uh, parameter values from an SSIS process. And what that allows you to do is it promotes code reuse. So uh, as I said earlier, you know, SSIS suffers some from having the name uh, SQL Server in the title. It's not a database. It's an application development platform. And all of the software best practices apply, Frank. So decoupling, separation of concerns, um, testing, code reuse, all of those things apply to SSIS. But what I, you know, when I, I'm preaching so much about DILM because we don't have the same tool set as software developers have. So, yeah, that's something that fascinated me too. Is you look at this and it's just like source control and, and, and continuous integration. It's just like, uh, well, there's, there's, in consulting, you see a lot of variables uh, and environments, but so not every development environment um, has one deployed. But um, you know, I mean, this is a I, I, I'm going to go out and let and say this is, is a solved problem um, for you know software engineers at least. So when you kind of see the data side of things, where this isn't really worked out. I mean, last summer I was on a project where um, there was some debate about well the stored procedures and table scripts, should we, should we check them into source right. control or not? And I'm like, right, uh, right. why wouldn't you? No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I understand why, and, and you understand why too, because the, the code that we use, say for, um, for a C-sharp project, um, the, the tools that are out there for that, they were built for checking in code. And the nature of the code itself lends, really lends itself to that. Um, here's a classic example of uh, why database lifecycle management is so hard is I roll out, you know, version two and, uh, you know, and, and version two includes adding a new column to my people table. Maybe I'm collecting a new piece of data from my website and I've got a new website piece of code that goes up and has a field for that. And it goes out there and starts collecting the data. I realize a week later there's a bug and I need to roll back. I can't patch it and fix it. So what do I do with that column? So I mean, I've got data in there. It's valid. Do I drop it? Do I, right. um, you know, do I just ignore it? Do I set it, make it nullable if it wasn't nullable? There's a whole host of problems that surround data, data lifecycle management and therefore data integration lifecycle management. When you start talking about things like, um, you know, about like rollbacks, which is a is a very neat and, and frankly, a, a kind of a rescue of, of some software projects. So 
those are those are that's just right. one of the concerns. There's others that are just specific to practicing any kind of lifecycle management related to data. So is this one of the? I mean, this is this is clearly a drawback for the kids listening who are hearing this um, that are uh, coming from a NoSQL background. Is this really a kind of a a consequence of the primacy of the schema in in RDBMS? You know, that's a good point, Frank. I, I'd say so. I'd say so. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you and I have had these discussions about you know the the term schemaless, right? <laughs> and neither right, of right, us, right? Right. We, we later. agree, that's a new one. but uh, yeah, schemaless or or the other you know the other terms they aren't. It's not entirely accurate to quote uh, Independence Day, uh, <laughs> right? So I think I think what's interesting is that. Um, Maybe this is why um, NoSQL databases have been so embraced by the developer community. Uh, you, you hear the mean stack and, sure. and then Mongo is part of that. Mongo is a NoSQL database. Maybe that's why there's, they, they're, they kind of took to that faster than RDBMS. You think that's a thing? No, or, I totally I agree. There's up? always been uh, an impedance mismatch between – uh, the way we build software and the way we store data, and that that is being That's nice. Being Object nice. relational mapping software (ORMs) have been developed to bridge that gap. The Entity Framework is one. Um, there's all sorts of frameworks out mm -hmm. there to do that. Yeah, yeah, and, and Mongo has a really neat ability mm -hmm. to, um, well, JavaScript I should say has a neat ability where you can just basically dot save, and you can store. Uh, the object you can persist an object and you know right into a database and because right. mongo works the way that it does it just goes there without having to create a schema and think about all of the different um, columns and data types and it's a lot easier in that and i right. totally get why people would want to do that um there's but there's a lot of baby in the bathwater of a relational database engine and as we've seen and as we are seeing, even in 2018, RDBMS is moving to the cloud. We're starting to see things happen around the uh, classic ACID properties, which is atomicity and consistency. Consistency is a big one when you go to the cloud. Um, isolation and durability. And all of those suffer a little bit when you change platforms, when you change the infrastructure. Um, that impacts the acid properties of data. Um, there's there's some real benefits to running with NoSQL, hands down. But um, what we're seeing is the lines are being blurred between NoSQL and SQL, especially in the cloud. So right. you take take Cosmos, right? You can pick your consistency model, um, but until you can, you know, it's not just the speed of light anymore. It's the speed of the infrastructure that you're running on. So the pipe actually affects this now. It's no longer um, the difference between writing to a log file and that log file then committing the transaction to uh, an, um, you know, a data file. Uh, now you've got latency that's just inherent right. in uh, quasi-connections uh, types like phones and tablets um, and anything running on Wi-Fi. There's a quasi-connectedness there. Uh, so it... it it, and it looks like, well, it's just going to add to the complexity. It doesn't. It actually multiplies and in some cases exponentiates <laughs> the, the complexity uh, of managing that. So 
they we've got to come up with ways to manage that. And it all feeds back into, into integration and engine data engineering. It's all coming back to that because the more the closer to real time you want to get. Uh, and, and when you start talking about near real time, Frank, in uh, data engineering, you're really talking more about processing signals um, than than we've ever talked about in this right. field. And I'm fortunate in that my background is in electronics. So I learned analog, right? <laughs> so, you know, when we start talking about processing right. signals, I'm breaking out my old uh, signal processing class uh, book, my communications, uh, electronic communications textbook. And I'm finding all of these patterns that apply now. Uh, and, and we're able to bring those to bear for clients who are trying to do what I call near real time. They'll call real time, but I, I'm not comfortable saying that. I'll say near. I've made the mistake. It depends. Mm. Real time is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I made the mistake in um, in a room full of engineers <laughs> in Silicon Valley saying getting data real time. And then someone, I'm not going to say which organization was from, but they had a, uh. a huge research arm at the time. <laughs> um, you can probably figure out who it is. Uh, just looking at LinkedIn, you can probably figure out who it is. And they were like, no, no, no. Nothing's ever really real right. time because, you know, the speed of light. And then he went on this, you know, even as I talk to you, like right. I'm, you're not hearing me in real time. There is a slight delay between. That's an engineering and thing. Like, and okay. I, I get it. And also that's, physicists, right? They'll right, they'll right, that right. Well, that's, that's, right. that's the background of this, this person was that. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. You know, for I said, you know, for the, you know, for the layman or, you know, on the, you know, the average Joe or Jane, real time right, is, right. you know, real time. And, and, and I mean, what's interesting is because we are moving to the cloud of, of consistency and Cosmos is a fascinating product because it just has so many different, it's, it's like a shape-shifting product, right? I mean, not only right. can you can change the consistency model, right. but you could change the API model. It's like... What sorcery is this? Like, I mean, it's just like, uh, and, and we had um, Rimaneme, who was a big force behind yeah. uh, that, and she was explaining it. And I was just like, and, and, you know, this is when I had first heard about it. And I was like, this sounds like magic. <laughs> this doesn't sound like it's possible. Like the SLA of consistency right. within five milliseconds is is just uh, globally. Well, this I have just a confession, impossible. you know, that I was, but, I did not realize until I was taking some recent training on NoSQL at edX that uh, I had not ever played with DocumentDB. And it's clear once you study DocumentDB mm -hmm. or take any training on it, and I don't know how much longer it's going to be a around, but that's what Azure basically started. Oh, sorry, uh, Cosmos started as DocumentDB. And it did have that. It had the consistency right. models, and it had right. a couple of interfaces that, that you, could, you could hit it with. But uh, absolutely, when they announced um, Cosmos DB, and I want to say it was last May or something, Frank. It's not even been a year. Um, yeah, well, and yeah. so, yeah, it, I agree with you. It's, you know, what sorcery uh, is this? Uh <laughs> right. And it's just, and, and, and then, uh, so I'm, I'm doing a series of, um, of uh, trainings on Azure focused towards right. uh, the Azure government platform, uh, which is essentially nice. a subset of, of Azure commercial. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, when we when we had the labs and we talk about this and you, you see kind of the documentation APIs, you know, the the some of the wording, uh, they use the term Cosmos yes. DB and Document DB interchangeably. Uh, probably because it originally was just Document yeah. DB, but they've since expanded it. And they've expanded it at a pretty rapid rate. 
And the other thing is explaining consistency models to traditional um, database developers or traditional developers is a very, it's very hard for them to grasp because we, we, you know, enterprise developers or people who work in large companies, it's, it's, it's traditionally been always RDBMS. There has been one consistency model, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and um, so the idea of multiple, you know, eventual consistency sounds like blasphemy. <laughs> it does. And yeah. uh, and I kind of say, you know, well, I mean, it all depends on what your use case is. This is the example I give. Like if you update your bank account or you're spending money like in your credit card, uh, or you, or you transfer money that you want immediate consistency. Absolutely, right. That, there's no question about that. Right, right. Anything transactional, you want that. If it takes another like 20 minutes for my Instagram photos or feed to be updated to the latest version, is it a nuisance? <laughs> yeah, probably a nuisance. But who really cares? Right. Well, it it bothers you during that time period. But the, I think the psychology behind this is important. Um, and I think it's driving this idea of eventual consistency. So here's the using exactly what you just described, Frank. If you don't look at it until 11 minutes after, you, you know, you post it. Let's say you post a picture of your awesome kids or the dogs. Mm-hmm. And I look at it. It takes 10 minutes to be consistent. And then I look at it, you know, 10 minutes and one second later. I don't see any delay. I don't experience the eventual consistency. Right. And as long as you bound the chaos and we could, man, we could talk about this for another two days, probably as long as you bound the chaos, it, there's, you know, there's some graphs where the lines cross and they, it turns out if you look at the lifetime of the digital information, the data that over the lifetime of that, that those lines cross way, way, way early. <laughs> you know, So that's right. the, that's the kind of the psychology. That's the art part that makes eventual consistency just really not that big of a deal. Now, if you're doing stock trades, okay, yeah, (laughs) it is a big deal. You need immediate consistency for that. And there's a bunch of use cases out there where immediate consistency is is the rule. And those aren't going away. So there's always going to be a need for that, regardless of the engine. It it may be a a relational database engines. I don't think RDBMSs are going away, but... But we found this whole other class of stuff that doesn't really require all that. And it turns out to just be a lot of overhead in some cases. And in other cases, Frank, it's completely unnecessary overhead. Right. And I also think, too, that as data expands into new territories, um, it's going to have to change and evolve, too. Like the structure, data structures are going to have to change. I think that's what we're seeing, you know. For the longest time, uh, you know, databases have been the sole domain of large enterprises. Then it became small enterprises. You know, businesses, basically, they conduct transactions. Transactions, uh, by their nature, uh, demand real time. Or, uh, you know... You know, some that engineer, if he if he does listen, he's probably like foaming right now at the mouth. Like it's not real time. time. (laughs) Real time enough, right? That's I'm gonna you know RTE, right? Real time enough. Um, but um, so um, uh, but as data kind of expands into these new uh domains, I mean, working on 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 websites and and things that were not transactional. You always felt like stuffing your data. I, now I, I didn't really understand it then, but now kind of looking back, yep. it makes sense. 
you felt like you were sho- shoving a uh, not a round peg into a square hole, but like a like a, an octagonal oct- <laughs> octagon shaped. Like it just it just felt awkward. Like you were trying to shove something there that you were trying to stuff right. it in, or you're trying to like if you it's like putting leftovers in. You pick too small of a Tupperware <laughs> container. And you're like trying to jam, but it's soft like potatoes. So like you're trying to jam it in. It just doesn't feel right. And then like, but now I, now I get it because uh, that, that, you know, that whole acid principles that you mentioned is just doesn't always apply. And those, I mean, again, I think it goes back to something that we discussed when Kevin Hazard was on the show. Oh, definitely. And I was, I was just thinking of Kevin's article uh, that's out at sequelauthority.com, Pinal Davi's site. If you uh, go out there and search for or search for SQLAuthority.com and Kevin Hazard, he wrote an article that was basically uh, what would it look like if if we designed the first database today? And, and you know, thinking right. about uh, he's he focused on in memory versus persisting to disk. But you know, Frank, we've had this conversation. The truth is, the operating systems that we're running on right now weren't designed to run on SSDs even. <laughs> and no. and when we're running them on SSDs, we're kind of hobbling the SSDs a little bit to say, act more like a spindle. Uh, you know? Right, right. And it's just it's just the the pace of engineer uh, of, of innovation and the engineering of the hardware is is outpaced the um the sure. software industry, which has been a long time well, since that goes back and forth, and it's um, always going to go back and forth. I mean, you're going to have software, yeah demanding more of the uh, hardware than it can deliver. And that's going to happen. It'll happen again. But yeah, this is kind of where we are right now. And that's a fascinating article. Kevin is a uh, super smart. If you haven't listened to that show, go listen to it. Um, we'll put that in the show notes at a link to yeah, his article. Yep. Yep. We have to do that. Yeah. We've been super busy. So sorry about not. <laughs> it's my show notes. Actually, I do do something. I do the show notes. I forgot. Um, and the reason I forgot is I haven't been doing a very good job of getting them done lately. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, I'll I'll get no that worries. caught up. But I, this has been a really great talk about uh, about data integration and uh, data engineering. I think I tell you, uh, Frank, what I'd love to do next time is let's switch roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that we talked okay. about you know data engineering versus data science in our first deep dive. Let's let me be the interviewer and let's let you be the interviewee, okay. and I'll ask you questions about data science next deep dive. Okay, I think uh, interviewer and interviewee sounds uh, better than expert and FNG. <laughs> but, well, I, but, I cringe uh, at the term expert. I always say experienced. Uh, <laughs> I'm still learning, Frank. <laughs> that's that's what living is all about. I think one of the things I've learned in the last few years is that if you're not continuously learning, you are um, um, slowly dying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. No, that would be my that would be my takeaway from 2016, 2017. <laughs> and and so for the first two months of uh, or three months now of uh, 2018 is that you have to keep learning. There's a number of reasons yeah. why. Maybe we'll do a show on that too. Like how I how was I able to you know get 17 oh, certifications? That'd be a great show. Well, we can work that into the data science show because that was uh, you got that data science oh, certification cool. from Microsoft through edX. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and I'll have the data engineering one too yeah. uh, in about a yeah, next month. But um, I'm hoping to do that with you. I'm uh, I'm close, but I have a couple more classes to get done here in the next couple you weeks. Could do it. Uh, you say that you could do it. I don't know if I could. Or not, <laughs> I only know I can do it because I did it. 
now. Everything's <laughs> I've listened to an audiobook and it was basically um um oh, what's it called? Relentless is the name of the audiobook. Yes. Um it, okay. Basically it's about a guy who was a sports trainer for Michael Jordan and then the Chicago Bulls and basically every big name in basketball and sports, he's worked with them. And um yeah. so basically he says, you know, everything's impossible until somebody does it. Wow. And I was like, wow. you know what? That is that is true. That's a good it's a good audiobook, which is actually an awesome segue because uh Audible is a uh sponsor of the show and they have hooked us up uh with a free book for our listeners. What's the URL, Andy? It is the data driven book.com. Cool. If you, so if you go to that link, if you're not already signed up on Audible, you'll be able to um uh, get one free audiobook and uh, Relentless is a good one. There's a lot of foul language in that one. Um, just be warned. But um, sure. I thought it was an interesting book. It, it, it kind of talks about it, it, even though his focus is sports, it's not it's not a, a big stretch of the imagination to apply it to other things. Um, right. And it's right. like and, and, and I, I'll probably be the first person in history to compare, you know, software engineers and data engineers as um, to athletes, professional athletes. <laughs> but I'm going to go there because that's what we do. We forge new roads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, is that, you know, those guys and gals, they have to continuously work on their their body, right? Even Michael Jordan, he 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 worked personally with Michael Jordan. He says, you know, Michael Jordan always yeah. practiced. He always, even though he was the best in his, um, you know, in, in, the, in the league and you know, arguably the best of all time so far. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, he, he basically said, you know, Michael Jordan at you know 18 is not Michael Jordan at, at 34. Right. Right. The body responds differently. There's there's, you know, just it's just the way it is. So, like, he had to constantly train to to be, you know, at, perform at that level uh, at age 34 than he did when he was in college. Um, right. So it's just it was just interesting. And it's an interesting book about like, you know, you know I, I found it very motivational. So cool. And um, so uh, let us know if you want us to call interviewee an expert or you want to keep the moniker <laughs> of FNG and um, I don't know, guru. I don't know. <laughs> let us know. We love getting feedback. We've got some awesome feedback so far. Um, and uh, we love our listeners. And um, uh, if you were offended by our, um, our, our, our jokes about the, the British use of the English language, we were just kidding, folks. Some of our best listeners are actually in the UK. And what, what I meant to say was at the end of it, I don't know if I said this. I did say it. But it was kind of like, you know, they act like they invented the language. And I was like, oh, yeah, they did. We're the silly Americans. Like, that's that's kind of what I meant. <laughs> that's us. And we have a nice British lady that'll take us out. We do. And we actually got a question about that. Speaking of feedback. That's true. Uh, which I don't know, think we ever discussed. So somebody said, "Well, hey, why do you why do you have a British um, lady doing the voiceover for the intros and the outros?" And I was like, "Well, with me and my kind of <clears throat> New York, New Jersey accent, and Andy with his uh, gentlemanly Southern drawl, uh, <laughs> we didn't want to make it too East Coast or too American. So we thought, you know, let's 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 class it up. Let's make it a bit posh with a, a nice British accent." That's it. So in case you're wondering. So with that, I will let the nice British lady end the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen. Become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. 
Sign up today at datadriven.tv.